Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Radio New Zealand called Catherine Chidgey's The Wish Child, winner of this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards Fiction Prize, a brilliant, brilliant novel, a masterpiece. It's the long-awaited fourth book from the writer, set in Nazi Germany and told from the perspective of two children and a mysterious narrator. The Wish Child is the fourth novel for Chidgey, whose other works include In a Fishbone Church, The Transformation and Golden Deeds, which was voted Book of the Year by Time Out magazine in London. She's in conversation with Jennifer Levasseur. We hope you enjoy this session. Thank you. Thank you and welcome to our session, The Wish Child. My name is Jennifer Lavasser and I'm pleased to be speaking this afternoon with Catherine Chigi. Before we start, if you could just take a moment and make sure that your phones are on silent. Thank you. We encourage you to share Auckland Writers Festival on social media, but please do so with consideration for your fellow attendees. Catherine and I will talk about The Wish Child and her work in general. She'll read a couple of sections from the novel for us, and we'll save time at the end for questions, so please be thinking about what you'd like to ask Catherine. This week, Catherine Chigi won New Zealand's richest writing award, the Acorn Foundation Prize for The Wish Child, a novel that documents the power of the written word. As the judges commented, so dangerous they must be cut out or shredded, so magical they can be wondered at and conjured with. The Wish Child, her first novel in 13 years, has been warmly embraced. But Catherine Chigi has been on the forefront of New Zealand letters since the beginning of her career, winning the Adam Prize in 1997. Her first novel, In a Fishbone Church, won the Southeast Asia South Pacific Commonwealth Prize, as well as the Montana Award for Best First Book, and was long listed for the Orange Prize. Her second, Golden Deeds, was selected as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year and was shortlisted for the Deutsch Fiction Medal. In 2002, she was awarded the inaugural Glenn Schaefer Prize in Modern Letters. Her third novel, The Transformation, is set in Tampa, Florida, in 1898 and was published in 2003. She's held several writers' residencies, including the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship in Menton, France. And she also has degrees in German literature, psychology, creative writing. She's even translated German children's picture books into English. She teaches at the University of Waikato in Hamilton and at the Monaco Institute of Technology. Her next book, her next novel, you'll be happy to hear, will be published next year, or sorry, this year, later this year in November, by uh, Victoria University Press, and it's called The Beat of the Pendulum. According to the listener, intelligent, lyrical, disciplined, and observant, Catherine Chigi is the real deal, the star of her generation. Welcome, Catherine, and congratulations on The Wish Child. Thank you. The Wish Child is a wonderful, rich story of two German families during the Second World War, one living in Berlin, middle class, the other on a farm on the outskirts of Leipzig. And while we follow young Sieglinde and Eric through their respective childhoods, we're drawn along by an unnamed narrator, one whose identity isn't revealed until quite late in the book, and we won't, spo- we won't spoil that surprise for anyone here. You've said that you came across this figure by chance, that you were watching a documentary about the Second World War. And I'm just wondering if you could take us back to that moment. First, what what year that was, and whether you were in the middle of a different book project at the time, and and whether you were even looking for a book project when you discovered that figure. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in the middle of um, my German World War II novel. Um, So it did start out as being the story of a boy, the boy who kind of morphed into Erich. But at that time, um, the book that I started writing was Erich as an older man looking back at the life of his mother who had been a film star during the Third Reich and he was asking himself why she kind of made the career decisions that she did. Um, And Yeah, for whatever reason, that project was just failing to fire. 
but I was lucky enough to have a writer's residency here in Auckland in 2010, 2011, so I stayed in the Pa homestead um, in Hillsborough for six months, and if any of you have visited it, you'll know it's this amazing old Victorian mansion which has been um, beautifully renovated to house James Wallace's collection of New Zealand art, so the largest private collection of New Zealand art in the country. Um, and Sir James is an old boy of Otago, and he wanted to make um, a writer's residency available to New Zealand writers who had some connection with Otago. So um, I'd had the Burns Fellowship down in Dunedin, and so I was offered um, a few months living in the self-contained apartment in the Parr homestead. And um, so I was living on my own there. It was kind of a strange setup at night because um, during the day people would come and go and, and look at the art and go to the cafe and walk around the beautiful grounds and the park. But at night time it was just me and millions of dollars worth of art <laughs> um, in the middle of a big park and a security system that would sometimes be tripped by things mysterious. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I watched a lot of TV. <laughs> Mm. And, uh, People watched, don't often know that secret about writers. I know, I know. Mm. Um, it mm. was all research. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watched a lot of Sky documentaries, and you know how they often have um, docos about mm. the Third Reich, and yeah. often they're kind of lurid. Mm. Um, but I was watching this one in particular that, that made very fleeting mention of this, you know, quite small, insignificant mm. historical figure, and, and I can't say more about him than that, but straight away I knew, yes, this is how to solve this, this book, this is how to undo the knot um, mm. that I've made with this novel that's not going anywhere. So it took a completely different direction at that point mm. and, um, and, and really started firing from then. Mm. Now, as, as anyone who's ever tried to write anything, even an email, knows, there can be a, a, a great fear of that great white page. Mm -hmm. And a novel can be anything and that's one of its biggest gifts and that's one of its biggest hurdles. When, in, in that process, after you discovered this, this person, this figure, um, when did you realize that it would be important to the structure of the book to keep that identity a secret until quite far along? Straight away, yeah, straight away. Mm. Um, partly because um, very little is known about this mm. person and um, that, you know, that's one of the reasons why the mention in the documentary was so fleeting, mm. is that um, you know, records have been destroyed, family members perhaps don't want to admit to um, having been uh, involved in this person's story, um, the people who might have known more about him weren't talking, mm. um, and so the information that I could gather was very scant and often contradictory, mm. and all of that, um, you know, pointed me towards a mystery, yeah. uh, and and towards also a certain fluidity with the voice. Um, it, it actually, although it was frustrating to begin with, um, not being able to find out exactly what happened, um, it, it actually led me to um, kind of a real freedom with that narrator's voice, the the freedom to allow him to sort of move from character to character mm -hmm. and to. So he's able to observe um, Eric and Sieglinde, the two children, and their parents, but he can't interact with mm. them. Mm. Um, there's kind of a dreamlike quality yeah. to him. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know what the mystery of that character's identity, that narrator's identity, did to me as a reader. It made me want to be smarter. It made me want to, f to be clever enough to figure it out <laughs> before, before you let me in on the secret. Um, it also propelled me along with an extra added beat to the novel, because you could read the novel on some level without it, but mm -hmm. it added this extra current. And it also added a little, um, little crackle of suspense. Is that what you intended? Is that how it feels to you? Is that what you wanted us to feel? Yes, yes, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad good. that worked. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, I remember, um, as I was writing the novel, I would um, drip feed paragraphs of it, sometimes literally just a small paragraph, I would send it to um, my writer friend, Tracy Slaughter, um, who has just been you know, such a rock over the years during the writing of the book. 
Um, and, you know, I would say, oh, here's today's pathetic offering, what do you think? Mm. Um, and she would email, you know, and I'd compulsively check my emails to see, has she read it yet? Has she read it mm. yet? She hates it. Oh, God, I know she hates it. Um, and, you know, she would almost invariably reply within the hour and say, it's amazing, you have to keep going, this is really incredible. And later on, when she read the whole manuscript as a piece, then she had, you know, more sort of nitpicky suggestions, but, but I was really grateful for just that mm. kind of unalloyed encouragement um, mm. during the actual writing of it, um, because it kept me going. And um, I remember the day when I revealed to her who the narrator was, because I hadn't told her. Mm. I, I wanted her to come to it, um, you know, as a fresh reader too. And I remember feeling as I was about to hit send, in a minute, I won't be the only person in the world who knows this secret. And it was a secret that I'd hugged to myself over the years and felt very protective of. I feel very protective of that person, that presence in the book. Mm. Um, and now that it's published and it's out there in the world, I actually really like the feeling that other people know that story too. Mm. Um, because it's a story I didn't want to, um, to die, I didn't want that story to just sort of disappear through the cracks of history because I think it's an important one to put on the record. If I can just follow up about your relationship with Tracy Slaughter, it seems like such a, a generous gift that she's given you to be your, your, your not your vetter, but just your, your ear. Yeah. And to receive that on a daily basis is, is just quite a gift and quite unusual. Is she your ideal reader? Is she some, are you thinking about anyone as you were drafting this novel? Um, she definitely is my ideal reader because she just loves everything that I write. <laughs> She's kind of like my mum in that respect. <laughs> um, but no, I, I actually try not to think of an audience as I'm writing. I think that can be quite paralyzing um, because then it's, it's a very short step from that to thinking of a reviewer and you start yeah. writing your own bad reviews and that's, that's just deadly. <laughs> Now, all of, all of your novels have quite large casts of characters, which you handle quite beautifully. We're never lost with about who, we, who we're with or um, where we're going. But they're all, each character is so rich and full, and they each have their own secrets, their own obsessions, their own interests, even if they're quite minor characters, which makes me wonder, when you get an idea for a book or just an inkling, a spark for a book, do you sketch out characters before you even know where they're going? I do. I do keep quite an extensive file of information um, about the different characters, but that extends to, um, to the setting of a book. Um, I find I have to keep quite close tabs on the geography of a story and, and where the characters are placed in that geography of a story. Um, and so, as well as keeping um, facts and figures about the characters and about what's happening historically at the same time as you know something domestic is happening in their lives, so I sort of have these um, parallel timelines. Um, uh, something I did for the Wish Child, which was really helpful, was um, to use 3D modeling software to create ah. the three main settings in the book. So I stumbled across this tool when my husband and I were building a house um, about six years ago. Mm and I was completely obsessed with getting the floor plan right, mainly so that my office would be in a quiet part of the house mm. and away from him. Um, hmm. so, I, so yeah, I, I was using this 3D modeling software to sort of look at our, our floor plans and um, I started sketching out the Berlin apartment mm. that Siglinda's family lives in um, and I also did the farmhouse that Eric lives in and the abandoned theater that the two mm -hmm. children um, end up taking shelter in um, during the downfall of Berlin. And so I was able to sort of walk my little virtual self round mm -hmm. those settings from room to room and I could sort of make myself several meters tall and look down, you know, take the roof off and look down. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just really helpful for me when I was feeling quite stuck um, to imagine my characters in 3D that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Now, I just want to talk about the Second World War for a moment and what a large body of work, large body of literature there is about the Second World War. Did you have any trepidation about wandering into that realm yourself when they're, when they're all, readers love it, of course. Readers mm. love to read a novel about the Second World War. But was there any trepidation? Was there any worry about adding to that? 
I was certainly aware that it's well-trodden territory. But yeah, we do keep going back to it. We mm. do still want to hear those mm. stories, and I think it's important that we're still talking about those stories, mm. especially for um, you know, a younger generation who may not um, know everything that happened during the Holocaust. Mm. Um, I think it's important not to forget. But I was also aware that I wanted to come at it from a fresh angle, if possible. And so my narrator helped with that. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed to sort of provide a way of telling the story that hadn't been done before. Um, and also the sort of touches of magical realism in yes. the book, or, or perhaps um, touches of, of absurdity in the book, also, um, I hope, um, helped me to give a, a, a bit of a fresh slant on that material. Um, so, for instance, you know, in, in some ways I, I'm extremely um, mindful of wanting to get everything right historically, um, wanting to get tram stops right and underground stops right and, and the date of every battle right, um, all of those things. But at the same time, I gave myself the, the freedom to sort of bend history now and then mm -hmm. to comment on the absurdity of the times. So, um, you know, the, the factory visits mm -hmm. that um, Sieglinda's teacher takes her class on are kind of just slightly larger than life and slightly absurd. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was just a way of talking about, yeah, how actually weird and strange mm -hmm. that period was. Mm -hmm. Mm. That brings up two things I want to follow up on. Research, but also this, this, this strangeness, the almost magical realism of part of the book, because it's a very, very realistic book about two children and their childhoods and their families through a, quite a revolutionary period in history. But there are also just some strange happenings, and because mm -hmm. the book is so real, so grounded, I found myself unsure whether I was misinterpreting or whether and through the characters, whether, whether they were misinterpreting. At one point um, in Zieglinda's um, family apartment, the, the walls seem to move. The apartment yep. is seeming to get bigger. Yep. And the mother, Brigitte, is the first one to, really, to, to think maybe she's noticing that. But she thinks that can't, that can't be true, that can't be possible. Um, and of course, their apartment is being made bigger while their neighbors, who is a Jewish family, their apartment is being made smaller. And Brigitte keeps pointing this out to people, isn't the room bigger? Mm. And they're saying, of, cor of course it's not, mm. of course it's not. Mm. And I was wondering, is there any basis in reality for that? Or is that more of a, of a, a metaphorical um, encroachment? Yeah, it, it's metaphorical, and actually the idea for that came when I was fiddling with the 3D modeling mm. software, because you can put the mouse on a wall, <laughs> and hold it down and the wall will move. Mm. Th that's when I started thinking about that. But, but yeah, I thought, well, what a great metaphor for kind of mm. the squeezing out of a whole sector of German mm. society. And, and not just sort of taking something away from someone else, but the knowledge that it's, it's a balance. If you take room away from the apartment on that side of the wall, then the apartment on the other side of the wall must get bigger. Um, but I... I I kind of stretched that, um, those scenes out over um, a little distance in the book because I wanted it to be something that happened quite gradually so that the first time Brigitte notices it or thinks she notices it, she thinks, no, that, that can't be happening. And it's hardly moved at all. But gradually, yeah, it, it, it changes and changes. And I, and I just wanted to um, use that to get at the way that um, during a, a period like that, Change can happen so gradually, and, and um, terrible things can begin to unfold, but so gradually that um, they're already well in train before you even notice, or before you even allow yourself to admit that, yeah, something weird is happening here, and something actually wrong is happening here. But even when she, even when she can't deny it any longer, even when people start to comment, wow, your apartment is so much bigger than it used to be, she's in an active, or a lazy denial, because it's just too complicated to face the reason why it's happening. It's much easier yeah. for her just to, to quietly accept it. Yeah, and, and to sort of make up reasons for herself, like, well, Berlin is built on sand. You know, it's former swampland, and that's it's some kind of weird subsidence that's happening in the building. That's all it is. I'll just go on with, with my life. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about 
how you conducted your research for the book. The book feels completely authentic, but it also doesn't feel weighed down by anything you're trying to teach us about the war or the place or these particular people. How does research work for you? Do you, do you just, just gobble up everything you can find before you start writing, or do you start writing and find out what you need to know? Um, yeah, the latter, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I guess it kind of, it, it always works in tandem with the writing for me. Um, I find that it's, it's quite a danger to um, just gobble up all the research that you can because then, um, you know, you'll never actually do any writing and you'll find yourself sitting on eBay for days on end and buying antique jewellery and pretending that this is somehow, you know, well, this might be a piece that one of my characters would wear in the 1930s. And so, yeah. <laughs> I must buy that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's always a danger for me. And it's a tax write-off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it? Um, <laughs> so I really try to um, get the words down, write the scenes in the way that I think they would have happened, and just write XXX if I don't know something, or leave a gap if I don't know something, and then a note to myself to go back and check that later. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I've had some real gifts of research, and I think most writers would say the same. You know, things like stumbling across um, the voice of the narrator, or um, things like um, when it was law, it was compulsory to greet each other with the German greeting, which was the Nazi salute. Um, it, was <laughs> it was discovered that on German trains, when train drivers were doing this to each other, they were actually misinterpreting these salutes for train signals. And so there were, <laughs> there were accidents, there were train crashes from train drivers, you know, following the letter of the law and saluting each other. Um, and, and I love finding details like that, so I did weave that into um, one of the scenes in the book that, that train drivers had been allowed a special dispensation not to perform the German greeting. Yeah. I'd like to ask you to read for just, in just a moment, but before we get to that, one more question, because you mentioned process and, and how writers have to um, avoid the internet if they want to get anything done. Um, I'm reminded of, of something that the writer Elizabeth McCracken said about getting ready to write for the day. She said the worst, the worst hour of the day is when she decided it was time to write, and she'd walk to her desk, and then she'd walk around in a circle around her chair saying, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Yeah. You've said that your process is quite um, messy and chaotic. What, what gets you going in the morning? What, what finally gets you to, what makes you, you, you want to do it, but you don't want to do it, like yeah. most writers. Yeah. So what, what pushes you over into, the, yes, I will do it? Well, actually, um, my writing process has just changed. So just over the last few months, um, out of desperation, when I realized that I have no time in my teaching day now um, to fit in writing, and I also have a nearly two-year-old. Um, so I, I, I've never been a morning person, but I've started um, getting up at six o'clock and working for two, two and a half hours before I have to go off and do my teaching work. Um, and I've been surprised how I've embraced that. I wouldn't say how easy it is, but it is a lot easier than what I used to do, which was um, try and work later in the day. And I think, I think what it is, is that I haven't quite woken up, <laughs> and, and the internal critic has not quite switched yeah. herself on. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. can sort of shut the door on that bitch and, and, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to read a little section from The Wish Child for us, please? Sure. Um, so this section is um, about Sieglinda, the girl who lives in Berlin, and she has just turned 10, which means that she is now old enough to join the Jungmädel, which is the branch of Hitler Youth for 10 to 12-year-old girls. It's actually compulsory to join. Um, uh, a couple of things that are mentioned in the passage are um, the Lietzensee, which is a lake in Berlin, uh, the Ziegersäule, which is a huge um, gold-winged statue of a, a victory figure in Berlin, and the Kiffhäuser, which is a sacred mountain where um, the Emperor Barbarossa is supposed to rest until the time comes for him to awake and, and um, bring Germany to greatness again. 
The girls learn songs too, folk songs and war songs and lullabies. And Yulia, their leader, reads them fairy tales from a big red book with golden edges that she keeps in the cupboard along with the paints and paintbrushes, the scissors, the spools of thread, the pieces of fabric, the tail ends of balls of wool and string, the bottle tops, the scraps of wood. And from these raw materials, the girls make smiling families, sturdy houses, clean, bright trains with clean, bright passengers painted in every window. Why, they could make a whole village, a whole city. Is it true, asks Edda Knopf, that there is a false Berlin on the outskirts of town? A decoy built to confuse the enemy. Julia says, it could be true, it certainly could be. Didn't we cover the Lietzensee with floating planks to make it look like a suburb when seen from the air? Didn't we strip the Ziegersäule of her shining layers of gold? We are a resourceful people, she says, and the girls nod. And the stories she reads them are stories of disguise and change too, of one thing becoming another. Seven sons wished into ravens, a little tailor crowned a king, a severed finger the key to unlock the glass mountain, a bone that works its way free of the earth and sings the name of its killer. And Julia speaks to them of the Führer, who has freed Germany from the fraudulent treaty signed in the Hall of Mirrors, and who does not ask of us anything he has not asked of himself. Six million were starving, without work. Can you imagine such a number, says Julia? And no, we cannot, it is an unthinkable number. And the Führer gave jobs and bread to the six million, just as he had promised, and there was no need for begging and stealing, and the streets were safe once more. And girls, you too belong to the Führer. And because you belong to him, you must make your payments each month, even if it is difficult for you and your parents, and means you must make a sacrifice. And you must always remember that the Hitler Youth has prospered only because of sacrifice. But the war? The dead, the father who cuts off his daughter's hands, the sun and moon who eat children. Everyone falls silent and uncertain. Sometimes, Julia says, after a moment or two, we need to accept things we don't fully understand. What matters is not so much what we believe, only that we believe. The Führer knows exactly what he is doing, we can follow him with our eyes closed. And we must trust him, and we do trust him, all of us. We trust him and we belong to him. We will march on, even if everything shatters. And if our elders scold us, let them bluster and shout, forwards, forwards, youth knows no fear. And we tell ourselves that Barbarossa is not dead, cannot be dead, deep in the mountain he sleeps, his red beard piercing stone, and when the ravens leave the Kiffhäuser, he will wake. He will hang his shield on the pear tree's withered branch, and it will flower again. Thank you. I'm wondering about your construction of that particular section. Um, it obviously has so much behind it. Um, and I, but I, I wonder, is your book, does your book push, push the propaganda even farther, or is it gentler? Is it, is it not quite as, as severe as some of the propaganda that these, that these families, that these children were receiving? Um, I spent a lot of time researching um, Nazi propaganda and um, found it totally fascinating, and a lot of it is woven into the text of the book. Um, without attribution, so I put those words in the mouths of the characters and they speak them as if they're their own words when in fact they're, you know, um, pieces of hate that have been published by Goebbels, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for instance, um, Julia's line in that section, what matters not so is not so much what we believe, only that we believe, mm -hmm. is a line from Goebbels. Um, and that kind of splicing in, or that kind of, that subtle um, kind of inclusion of those, um, those words was a way for me of showing how 
deeply those ideas infiltrated um, German everyday life and, and everyday people. Mm. And they did spout them as if they were their own thoughts. Mm. And that's how those ideas take hold. Mm. Well, speaking of the, the actions of ordinary, everyday Germans, one of the, even the book deal has, has many, um, many beautiful, many, many funny, surprisingly, and also some horrific moments. But one of the, one of the um, almost everyday, um, seemingly innocuous moments of horror for me in, in the novel was when Brigitte has this desire. Brigitte is the, is the mother of Sieglinde, of the, the Berlin family. She has this desire to acquire a samovar, mm -hmm. which of course during war is something that you really need. Yeah. <laughs> and she wants it because her very wealthy sister-in-law has one and she's, she's covetous. And when she sees um, an advertisement for a sale, she goes and, and looks and, and instead of realizing or considering where these objects are coming from, she just kind of flippantly says, well, lots of these sales are happening all of a sudden. There's mm -hmm. so many more. Mm -hmm. And she quite happily trapes through, which is cl a clearly a family home that's been taken over. You know, there's still a, a used washcloth in the bathroom. And, and she refuses to actually consider where these objects are coming from and just happily fulfills this desire to buy a samovar yeah. that she will never need and yeah. she will never use. Yeah. With, did that, that particular instance, did that, did that come from anything, any of your research or was that something that you, in trying to develop that character and learning about that character and sketching out that character, did you make that her desire? Um, I had seen ads of the period, um, you, you know, newspaper advertisements for auction sales um, like the one that Brigitte goes to, and I knew from um, research that they were very often um, Jewish households, and often they were, you know, there were crumbs on the table, there were washcloths in the bathroom, um, there was tea still in the teapot, um, the apartments had just been vacated, and everything was sold. And I also saw um, photographs of ordinary-looking Germans attending those mm -hmm. sales. So I knew that I wanted to um, use that material in the book some way, and Brigitte was the character I attached it to. And I suppose that's the way that research and characterization goes hand in hand for me. Um, when I decided that, okay, I think it belongs to this character, it told me something more about her character, mm -hmm. and so I could start to kind of build on um, the side of her that um, wants to ignore what's going on around her, yeah. yeah. Peter Carey once said that it's not very helpful for writers um, to have readers point out to them their obsessions or their motifs or the things that follow on or the images that pop up in, in all of their books, but he also acknowledged that readers really love to do that. <laughs> and maybe the only time that it's helpful for, for a writer is at the, the psychologist's office, but, but, he, <laughs> but he knows that readers really like to do that. Um, and, and there are, there are some, some it, it's very fun for the, for the reader to, to go through your four books and, and, and kind of find all of those little pieces um, that do appear again and again. And one, t one motif that, that reappears um, often in your novel is the notion of the lost or the missing child, the long for child, the preciousness of the child. And that, mm -hmm. that's, that's present in your, in your first novel. Um, and so without making you uh, focus too much on that, Mm. We can just play with that. Um, I, I wonder how your practice has changed now that you are a mother, now that you have a child. Mm. Uh, well, I have to get up a whole lot earlier in the day to write. <laughs> yeah. um, but you're right, it, it, it has always been um, an obsession of mine, I suppose, and it's not something that I'm conscious of. I mean, I didn't sit down to write The Wish Child and think, oh, this is something that I've touched on in my previous novels, mm. you know. Um, let's write a whole book about it. I mean, the wish child is taken from, the, the expression, the wish child is taken from the German expression, das Wunschkind, which means the wanted child or the desired child. Um, and they, uh, yeah, wanted children were very much uppermost in my mind when I was writing the book because um, my husband and I were going through infertility. Um, and although that's not, directly um, in the story, it's there between the lines, you know, that, that longing and that grief is there um, in between the lines in The Wish Child. But also, um, 
I was a child of the 70s and 80s, and I think that's a time when New Zealand really lost its innocence in terms of missing children. Mm. And I remember, um, you know, names like Kirsta Jensen and Carla Cardno and Teresa Cormack, they were the girls who were missing in my childhood. And um, Kirsta Jensen's story in particular has always stayed with me because the picture of her that was everywhere in the newspapers at the time of her disappearance looked uncannily like my school photo. I think it was a school photo of her. Mm. And possibly that's no big coincidence. We were the same age, you know, we had the same kind of tragic haircut and the same sort of school uniform, um, the same sort of hair colour and, and facial features. But um, I found that story quite unsettling um, at the time of her disappearance because it was also the time when our parents started to say to us, you can't go to the park anymore on your own. You know, this is no longer a safe place. And you start kind of putting yourself into the shoes of the lost child and think, well, if it happened to her, who I seem to have so much in common with, then it could happen to me as well. And I think that feeling of, you know, unease hasn't really left me. I had um, a strange moment late last year, I think it was about December, when the summer issue of the magazine North and South came out and um, Kirsten, you know, that photo of Kirsten Jensen was on the cover. Mm. And I saw it in the supermarket and I thought, wait, what? Mm. Um, and realised it was her and not, weirdly, my old school photo. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think I can trace that obsession back to that period. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we as, as, a, as a society do fetishise the lost child too. I mean, look at the, the kind of feeding um, on, on the... Um, media stories or anything that, that, that is in the media about Madeleine McCann, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I also ask myself, would we have that kind of feeding frenzy if she wasn't a white and blonde and pretty child? But, mm. you know, that's a whole other book. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk for a minute, for, for a moment about, about place and setting? You've always, throughout, throughout all of your books, branched into other settings. So the first two books have settings in New Zealand, but you also deal with, with England and Australia, um, and your third book is set entirely in Florida. And now, now Germany, and Germany in a, in a very particular, a very fraught um, time. Did you, do you, so obviously you, you feel quite free taking advantage of, of, of any setting, but for this particular book, for The Wish Child, were there, were there and I know that you have a, a long affinity with, with Germany, but did you, how did you, were you fearful, or was there, were there any, any moments of, of worry about taking on and, and, and writing about another culture from within it, hmm. from, the, from the perspective of German characters? Um, yeah, definitely, but, um, you know, it's another one of those voices that I have to shut out of my head. I don't hear voices, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's another one of those concerns that you just have to squash and worry mm. about later. It's kind of like the research, like, you know, get the words down and then worry about that stuff later. Mm. Um, so I still had um, lots of friends in Germany and in Berlin in particular who could check the finer details mm -hmm. for me because, you know, you have to get those things right, or I think, I need to get those things right. Um, so, for instance, I got my friend Annie in Berlin to check the number of stairs in the stairwell in her mm. apartment building. Is it 12 or is it 13? <laughs> I was really hoping it was 12 because rhythmically in the sentence that worked better. <laughs> um, and it was. I, I actually used to um, board with her in, the, in that apartment, which is the Heilmann's apartment um, in the book. So, but yeah, I, I, I have a very, um, so strong feeling that if you don't get those details right, and a reader, even just one reader, notices that the whole scaffolding of the book comes mm. crashing down for that reader. Mm. 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 I'm sure there probably are things I've got wrong and I don't know, but mm. yeah. There, there's so many things going on in this wonderful novel. We have the, the stories of the two children and their, and their families. We have this secret, um, this narrator, whose presence is, is very felt but we're, we're moved along wondering, wondering who that narrator is. But there are also these other, I mean, if that wasn't enough, there are also these other wonderful voices that you bring in to give a, a, some more nuance of the, of the time and of the period. There's uh, Zieglinda's teacher who takes them on 
on field trips into German factories. And there's also this section of the, the Frau Miller, Frau Mueller, mm -hmm. who, which is almost written as a stage play. Mm -hmm. um, before you read a little bit more for us, can you talk about bringing those other voices in? And did you have any models for those? <laughs> it was a lot of fun bringing those other voices in. I guess they're um, lighter moments mm -hmm. in the book. Um, so the two German housewives, Frau Miller and Frau Müller, are, are really just me recalling um, the Berlin um, women that I encountered when I lived there with all their kind of prickliness and, and, and bluntness. Um, but the, they have their dark moments too. Um, mm. You know, they, they quote um, Mahler's songs for dead children at each other at one point, but the reader might not necessarily pick up on that, and I don't mind if the reader doesn't. It's kind of enough for me to know that I've planted that material in there. Um, yeah, I, I found those sections came to me quite easily, scarily easily. Maybe I'm deep down, I'm a German Hausfrau. <laughs> yeah. Um, shall I read a little bit yes, of, the, yes, of the teacher? Yes, please. Yeah, so this is um, a little snippet of um, Sieglinde's class being taken to um, another factory. So they go to a, a series of factories and, and they get darker and darker as the book progresses. But this one is still reasonably early on and it's um, a factory where medals and badges are made. Um, and it mentions the Reichsbahn, which is um, the German railway. I'll um, yeah, read a possibly truncated version of this little section. Remember the rules as we move through the factory, children. We are very lucky to be visiting it unlike some other schools who have been sent away to the country where there are no factories to visit. And remember to greet our guide, Frau Müller, with the proper German greeting. Some of you, I've noticed, have reverted to a simple hello. That is unacceptable. And some of you are not keeping your arms straight, also unacceptable. It is true that there have been train crashes when Reichsbahn officials have mistaken the German greeting used by other Reichsbahn officials for signals, but that is not our concern. Your arms are swords, they are bayonets, they are unbending branches of oak. Yes, Gerd? Stop laughing, boys and girls. It is a good question, a useful question. If your right arm is wounded or missing, you may use your left. Hmm. Was there something else? Well, then, I expect you would use your leg, but that's quite hmm. enough now. Nobody would lose both arms and legs. Hmm. Yes, there is the man on Alexanderplatz with his little trolley, but he fought in the Great War and therefore is entitled to certain privileges. Mm. And besides, he is very polite and speaks flawless German when begging for food. Mm. Some of you would do well to follow his example. For all we know, our Gauleiter, Dr. Goebbels, might be planning another competition to find the politest Berliner. I myself entered the last one. I was unsuccessful and did not receive a prize presented by the Gauleiter at a special ceremony, but that does not mean I have abandoned my good manners. Now, children, look at all the different medals and badges you can earn when you are older. Don't touch them, the pins are very sharp. But secondly, and more importantly, you will dull their shine. You will ruin the crucial work done by all the ladies who sit here day after day, polishing them with their rags so they gleam like gold and silver, even though they are not. Aren't they beautiful? Beautiful rewards for ugly acts. Perhaps ugly is the wrong word. I take it back, I did not say it. Here are the assault badges, turned out by the thousand every week, children. Did you hear that? Isn't that wonderful? Some of you will have seen such a badge before, on your Fatih's breast, perhaps, or perhaps he hides it away with his special things to keep it safe. And here is the medal for strengthening our west wall, with its tunnels and bunkers to hinder the enemy, and its dragon's teeth to stop their tanks, and it cannot be breached. And this one is for battle against the partisans who keep springing up many-headed from their nests as we keep cutting them down. See their forked tongues, their serpent eyes. And if you had fought in the East in that bitter winter, you might have earned the Eastern Front Medal, its ribbon woven in red and white and black for the blood, the snow, the death. But this one is just an example, children, because that winter is past, that battle is over, and the factory does not make them anymore, and alas, you can never earn one. But here is the tank destruction badge. You must destroy the tank on your own and unaided, so bear that in mind. And see, children, the sniper's badge, the sharp-eyed eagle considering its prey. You need at least 20 kills for this one, and 40 if you want the silver trim, and 60 if you want the gold and you must have witnesses to your kills, and each kill must be recorded and confirmed. 
We'll end with the wound badges. What a mountain. Hostile action, children, that's what you need to remember. Hostile action, it means you don't have to be a soldier. You can be wounded from hostile action in your very own house. If a bomb takes an eye or a hand, for instance. Facial disfigurement, brain damage, blindness, they all count, but not if they are present from birth, for then they are the fault of the blood and not the result of hostile action. Do you see? Thank you. Thank you. There's so much present in that section, and I think that it embodies so much about what's going on in the book in terms of language. So here's this, this teacher speaking to these children in such bold terms about disfiguration and mm-hmm. death, but at the same time, the, the propaganda um, makes everything seem very fluid and very gentle, and, and everyone has a place, and it's all very correct. And in, in this novel, the words and language do seem to work as both weapon and witness and guide. Um, I'm thinking about the, the different, the different um, roles that some of the characters have in the book. Zieglinda, when she's grown, becomes a puzzler, one mm-hmm. of the, the people who help put together the shreds left behind, um, the, the, the Stasi shredded um, documents. And her father, Gottlieb, is a, is a censor, and he's cutting words out of books. This, this fascination with the way that language works and that language can be a weapon, was that, was that part of the, the underlying story that you were trying to tell? Yes, definitely, and it's been a concern in my earlier books too. It is something that I keep returning to and, and sort of turning it over and trying to approach it from a different way each time. Um, but I open the book with a quote um, from Goethe's Faust, actually. Um, So I give the devil the very first words in this book, and um, the quote from Mephistopheles at the very start from the devil is, um, everything created deserves to be annihilated better than that nothing began. But right after that sort of sentiment, that sort of wish for destruction and annihilation um, are the words of the narrator. So the narrator's voice comes straight mm-hmm. after. And for me, you know, that was very deliberate and that was mm-hmm. a way of setting up um, that notion that um, despite great evil um, in the world and, and in the period that I'm writing about, you know, d- despite the devil, um, we still have to set down that story and we still have to record via the written word what happened. From the beginning of your career, you've had a lot of external affirmations. You've had some prizes, you've had residencies, you've had good reviews, you've had great sales. Has that put a certain amount of pressure on you? Um, And I'm thinking this this 13-year gap between novels, did you feel a, a public pressure to have something out there more quickly than you might have been ready to? Um, I did, and then it ended up taking 13 years, so everyone forgot about me, and and there was no pressure at all. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from the pressure I put on myself, yeah, yeah. And now I do feel as if, you know, I want to make up for lost time, and so the, the, you know, the next book is out in November, and I'm now about 15,000 words into the next book after that. Oh, fantastic. So um, I'm quite glad, in a way, for that hiatus, because it has... um, kind of cracked the whip that little bit more. Yeah. We'll, we'll start getting ready for audience questions. So there are microphones at the various ends. So if, if you have a question you'd like to ask, please come forward to the microphones. I'll ask Catherine one more question before, before you ask your question. So if you want to come start making your way to the microphone. Can you give us a little, a little bit of a sense of this, of this novel that's coming out in November, which is so, it seems so different uh, yeah. from any of the previous four novels that you've done? It is totally different. Um, It's called The Beat of the Pendulum, and that title is lifted um, from a quote um, by Proust uh, in which he's talking about um, the way that novelists need to um, artificially give a sense of time passing on the page. They need to sort of artificially accelerate the beat of the pendulum in order to simulate time passing. And... um, Last year, I decided to set myself um, the task of writing something every single day and seeing at the end of the year if I had a book on my hands. I decided that I wanted to do it last year because my daughter was turning one and was just beginning to um, acquire memory and language and words. And and my mother 
is at the other um, end of the spectrum. She's in her mid-80s and has dementia and is beginning to lose all that, and I'm in the middle of those two people. Um, and so I wanted to reflect something of, of um, you know, the acquisition of language and the loss of language and memory um, on the page and also the way that we mark time passing um, and the way that we um, are desperate often to hold on to those little fragments of day-to-day -day life, even as they're slipping past us and out of our grip. So the book, um, each day is an entry that's been um, crafted from language that I encountered during that day. So um, often I recorded conversations on my phone between me and my mother, or me and my husband, or me and my osteopath, or <laughs> you know, the checkout person at the supermarket, or I would um, you know, take a news story and use some of the words from that, or a Facebook post, or an ad, or a street sign. And um, the rule was that I could take out any of those words, and I could repeat any of those words, but I couldn't put anything new in. So it is verbatim. Often the order is really mixed up, and, and I use several different sources um, for one entry, and so you get something that kind of resembles a prose poem. Um, but it's an echo of a year. It's kind of the vestiges of a year or, or the kind of dreamlike reminiscence um, of a year. And um, yeah, it, it's a difficult project to describe, but it was um, so refreshing to, to be doing something that different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we look forward to seeing it in November. Thanks. I think that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your time. Catherine would love to meet you. She'd love to have a chat with you. Her book is available for purchase outside and she'll be very happy to answer your questions directly and to sign books for you. Thank you very much. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.